0: it's Chris. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. First of all, it's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will then distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You don't have to do any of that work. In addition, you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to Anchor.fm to get started. Welcome back to the Situation in the Story podcast, where you can peer into what happens behind the page as I pick authors' brains about their experiences, their process, and their purpose. I'm your host, Chris Moore. I need your reviews and I need your ratings on your podcast platform of choice so that I can continue bringing you this content. As always, thank you for tuning in. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. 12th episode, I sat down with poet and essayist Catherine Winograd to discuss her brand new collection of braided essays, Slow Arrow, Unearthing the Frail Children, released today by Saddle Road Press. Catherine is also the author of Phantom Canyon Essays of Reclamation, an IndieFab Book of the Year Award finalist, and Air into Breath, a Colorado Book Award winner in poetry. Her work has been published widely in journals such as *River Teeth*, Hotel America, and The New Yorker. She received her Ph.D. in literature and creative writing from the University of Denver and an MFA in poetry from the University of Iowa.
1: So why do you write? I would become a psychotic mess if I (laughs) didn't. I mean, seriously, it's the way I think the way i meditate the way i feel better about the world it helps me understand my place in the world and seriously if i'm not writing um and i'm not deeply engrossed in a project um i feel bad <laughs> well your
0: brand new collection slow arrow unearthing the frail children is so it's coming out in a couple days yes
1: yes it is yeah. um
0: and that's your i want to say third book
1: it's my sixth book. Sixth book. Yeah, but 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 the other three books were more like teacher resource books. I co-authored a couple of books. I did. I was really big into online learning. I co-authored a couple of books with a um, University of Massachusetts professor, and then I did a book um, for Scholastic on poetry, stepping sideways oh. into poetry. So cool. So, that, so it's three more literary books and three teacher resources books. But I will say right. I put money on the future resource books, which I've never made on the literary books. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> um,
0: so the new collection reminds me a bit of like uh, Annie Dillard or uh, P- Pilgrim on Tinker Creek or something like that. Um, how long is the collection in the making?
1: This one's been a hell of a long time. <laughs> 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 because i started so i have a friend annie dowid who's a wonderful fiction writer and essay she was actually one of the um colorado voices for a while she's down in west so she sent me a link this was you know i would say five or six years ago um there was a new uh journalism site and they, it was experimental that you would uh, submit your work and they would decide if they would take you on. And if they did, you had to kind of round up your own audience and then you would post. I proposed posting a monthly column and yeah. I to use uh, my cabin, which is up by behind Pikes Peak in Keller County, as like a microcosm of both what's beautiful in nature and then also um, the environmental issues that we face today. Uh, so I did that column. Um, and even as I did it, I knew that I was putting in placeholders for family story. I knew mm. that science and the biology and the history that I was learning about all could work metaphorically with family story. Um In creative nonfiction, we call that making a braid. So I'm making a braid. So um, I knew that I wanted to try to, after I was done with them. And I remember I had, I actually had um, lunch through Regis with, um, um, uh, Alexi, um, Sherman Alexi. Oh, wow. Which was really fun. And I told him about what I was doing. He's like, Oh, that's great. He says, you know, 12 columns, 12 months, a book. I was like, well, that's great. That was five years ago. (laughs) 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 So, um, so anyways, when I finished the columns, then I thought, all right, I'm just going to try to see if it work." And, um, it did. I, I, now I can't remember which essay, which column it was the first one that I uh, did. I think it was maybe sky glow because sky glow was about, um, the vanishing dark in our skies. basically. Yeah. And my mom, uh, came out here as, um, Slow Arrow was about about five years, five or six years ago. So she actually went with me on some of these trips where I would go around and look at the places in Teller County, like the a quarry where you could um, find fossils and fluorescent, yeah. uh, a wolf uh, sanctuary. And um, but anyway, she's going blind, and so I knew that somehow Sky Glow um, and the idea of this vanishing darkness at night mm. fit in with my mother. Um, yeah. Especially when I, there is something that's called, and now I can probably look it up in my book. It's um, a way that you look at the stars um, uh, at night uh, to try to see really the famous ones. And um, yeah. yeah, you have to learn, it's the art of dark adaption and yeah. keeping the sensitivity of the eye. And so what happened now was reading about that was that you know the risk is is that when you do that that the light is going to hit what they call the blind spot in your optic nerve yeah well as soon as i saw the blind spot i'm like well there's my mother right i mean there's her blindness and so i so then the essay became this um real uh, gray as um at this point my mom was trying to reconcile herself with having moved to colorado after you know, spending her whole life in Ohio, and um, and at that point she was feeling better, and um, I had gone to her apartment, her her playthrough looking out, but I also discovered these things about my mom um, that she had. I knew she had written when we were kids. She made us dress up for Christmas for these plays she wrote. <laughs> and, uh, there's a picture of her walking around with elf hats on, on stools. <laughs> <laughs> but I had not realized how serious she had been about poetry. Her mom had given her a book of poetry. My mom had read poetry. And I asked this question when I was over there once. I was trying to figure out, um, uh, there was a poem by Keats. I couldn't remember the name of it. And I was going, you know, and I didn't even think my mom would know. I didn't think my mom knew about Keats. And then like she, like, zipped up, you know, this little 85-year-old zips up out of her chair and bundles <laughs> over to this little bookshelf. Um, And in it is this uh, little volume of poems. And there's the poem by John Keats with her annotations. Wow. And that was a total shock to me. I, yeah. My mom really had, I mean, you know, she, my mom's a lovely person, and she has been supportive of me of poetry, but not, you know, that much. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. you know, they, they kind of asked me why wasn't I going to write for a medical journal? Well, (laughs) But, um, so it was just, it was a pleasant talk. So that, I think that was really one of the first ones that I sat down and tried to do. And I realized that it could happen. And so I went through each one of those columns and I, you know, really looked at them and thought, okay, well, what else is going on in here? And when I work with students, you know, I talk about You know, here's a little here's the hot spots in your piece or the door that you're opening up. You haven't walked through because I really believe that I believe that people write these drafts and the unconscious comes out as they're writing and they write things down and they don't even realize how emotionally important they are Mm. Point them out, out to them. Um, you know, one thing I've learned and since I went from writing poetry, which I still write, um, to creative nonfiction, is that if a person comes from poetry, they're much more likely to recognize when there is metaphoric possibility in prose. When yeah. it's opening itself up for you to go more in depth through image and create metaphor than someone who perhaps maybe started out on the journalism side and hasn't had that training in understanding how poetry works and yeah. for associative meaning and intuition. Um. So I. So I. So I see that. So I. So I kept looking for that in my own pieces, right? In order to find. Okay. So I wrote about this. I wrote about that. And what are the threads? The things that are happening in my life now that have happened over the last five years, um. That uh, seem important and yeah as far as the process
0: of the braided essay are you saying that you you would maybe have a draft about your mother's blindness and then a draft about totally mm-hmm. separate about you know the vanishing darkness and then find a thread
1: or was it more kind of magically <laughs> yeah it's i mean it can be um you can do it anyway. I mean, I've had, I've worked with students where they've had a couple different drafts of different things that didn't work out. And then I've asked them to go out and get an outside piece because one thing that's so powerful in a braided essay is when you can go out of yourself and one of your threads is something that you bring in from the outside world, whether it's political, it's science, it's history. Um, and then you weave that in and then suddenly, you know, you, you are a part of this larger world and now your essay goes from being maybe something that's very um, focused on the self to something that's more focused on the self in the world. Mm. Uh, for me personally, I, for these particular essays, I um, had just the columns that I'd written and then a sense of what I wanted to uh, write about you know, my mom's migration here. And so I would just come up with some images in my mind, some metaphors, and then I would want to tell the narrative. And I just kept finding places to sort of weave them through the column.
0: Yeah. Um, You do it really well. Now, earlier you mentioned the kind of the environmental and political piece, which reminds me of your essay, Migration Corridors. Um, Yes. And I think with nature writing and environmental writing, good nature writing definitely comes the political. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I'm reading through this essay and I come to the bit about solar panels incinerating birds. I had never heard of that. Me neither. I had no idea that was a thing
1: that was something that um, was exciting about writing these essays and these columns. There is um, the a past poet laureate is Natasha Trethaway. Mm-hmm. And when I taught at Ashland university's MFA program, she came out and did a wonderful job with the reading and discussion. And I remember she talked about um, gaps and for her, it was going down South. Um, her mother was uh African American, her father was white. She went down south and to these places where her mother had been and her father I hope I'm not misrepresenting this. It's been a while since she talked about this. Mm-hmm. And she but she found historical sites and she would look at the signs, right? That would give you information about something happened. But then for her there was the gaps behind those signs, like the real personal history that happened. Yeah. She started exploring that and it just kind of exploded what she discovered. And it really became the same for me here, uh, up at our land, you know, you go and let's say you go, um, well with a a migration corridor. I mean, it all seriously started because this kid was, um, chopping down my dying trees and he shows me this picture on his phone of an antelope. Yeah. Like, No way, there's going to be antelope up here. So then that kind of got me started exploring about what was an antelope. Um, And then Trump had said his, what was that famous line about the environment? About the (laughs) area. I love that one. That was great. Um, Let's see. That was the What uh, they
0: do is a disgrace.
1: Yeah, environmental protection. What they do is disgrace. Every week they came out they come out with new regulations. <laughs> well, you can tell that was a while ago, right? That's when he first started because now the new regulations are all destroying the environmental rules and that have been in, in laws and policies that have been in place to make our country great. Right. So that really got me thinking about um the environmental policies <laughs> that are there and you know what to be honest now as i think back i don't even remember how in the world i ended up finding out about those um about the um those uh, poor birds and butterflies that were uh, are uh, eviscerated basically by these um uh, mirrors that they put up yeah, the birds are called the streamers for the little puff of smoke they emit as they die through solar flares. Yeah, and, and the thing is, I think the irony for me was that the solar farm was created for a good reason, right? I mean, right. energy is better than oil and natural, you know, than oil and gas. Right. I, mean, I want to have soil energy in in, in all my um, houses. Well, my, all my houses, my cabin and my house, but you know who I think, you know, I, but here, but then what did, what happened? I mean, nobody thought about the power of those mirrors of those panels reflecting out Mm -hmm. in the sky and how it affected birds. So yeah, it really scared me to think about now about the kinds of environmental policies that are being done away with. Huh. and What are going to be the consequences that we don't even know about? So it was a real, writing this book was a real learning uh, experience for me too because I didn't know most of what was in this book um, in terms of environmental policies and um, different kinds of, um, uh, some of the issues I found out there that were political. That was, yeah. and that was, pretty fascinating. But all, but you know, if you go, if you were to go up to Teller County, I don't know if you've been up there before. Mm-hmm. It's very beautiful. It's not an Aspen. It's not a Vale, especially where I am, where our cabin are on this big um, high mountain meadow, call it. And then below it, I have rocks and trees. And I mean, and I got this great view of everything, but it's really where ranchers go to um, graze their cows, right? It's not where people go to ski, and so <laughs> there's a lot of, um, you know, grass everywhere grass, and, yeah. and trees. And that's yeah, like, okay. Well, there's another aspen tree, there's some more grass, there's another rock. Um, but when you start digging down into the natural history, into the biology, into the science, it's totally fascinating to find yeah. what is really there. And I, and I'm, I just proposed a workshop, um, to, um, Ghost House, um, which is down in New Mexico. Um, and I'm hoping they'll accept it, but you know, I want other people to realize that they can do this in their own personal writing that to do some research and they're going to find not only metaphoric connections that are going to deepen their personal story, but they're going to learn about this land we live on this planet. We live on in fascinating, intimate, intimate ways, both with the beauty, the absolute beauty and complexity of it. But then also, um, you know, with this history and, and, that, and how it's affected um, the environment and how the policies that are put on it or taken away affect it as well.
0: Yeah, I travel a lot, road trips and things like that. And I I mean, I've driven through the plains or areas like you're describing, just grass, rocks mm-hmm. and thinking, well, there's nothing here, but your yeah. Yeah. book, like taking us into the mining shafts and mm-hmm. the uh, the fossils. Yeah, it's like there's this whole hidden world.
1: I remember uh, I was wandering around the mines. I'm not sure it was the Victor mines or the Cripple Creek mines, but there was a sign I saw. It was a tourist sign. It was so shocking to me because I did not realize that the miners way back then in the 1800s would take burros and donkeys down into the mines so that they could lug around. Rock for them, and then when they the they got sick or they didn't need them anymore or they were going to close with the mine, they would just leave them down there in the dark to die. It's That's insane. so shocking to me.
0: That yeah, I mean
1: that there's there's so much
0: like metaphor there. Yes, it, you pull it out so well, and I love what you said earlier about how if you come from poetry, that can really impact your. Ability to write creative nonfiction in a positive way. Earlier, you had said something about how your students seem to just unconsciously put things into their essays that yeah. they maybe need to, you know, explore deeper or mine. And I, it, it had me thinking about dreams because I'm a very, very vivid dreamer heavy into the study of dreams with my therapist and things like that and i know your essay which is the namesake of the collection unearthing the frail children you wrote about your father's death
1: yeah
0: um and you wrote a lot about kind of dreams you had of him In there, how do dreams kind of inform your writing or even your life? I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit.
1: I'm unfortunately not a big, vivid dreamer. My husband is like, he has the most fascinating, he gets up in the morning and tells me his dreams. I'm just like, like, (laughs) you're just making this up because nobody dreams like you are dreaming. (laughs) Yeah, but um, you know, after my dad died, I it was interesting, I would have these dreams, and my dad would just show up and wave. Or he'd be over there, and he I'd see him smiling, like just like the dream wasn't about him. He would just sort of be there somewhere, but usually, you know, smiling, waving, etc. And then I had that one, that dream though, where uh, where my brother and I are taking him up these stairs, and where he is acknowledging that he's gonna die to my mother. I think dreams are powerful tools. Oh God, they're so powerful. Um, Terry Tempest Williams. I mean, has um, dreams. I think the the Clan of the One Breasted Women. Do you know that essay? It's, no. Oh my goodness, you should go read it. But at the end, it's about a series of dreams. If I'm correct. Uh, but I think that you know, for me, I, I want to agree with Freud. I think that you dream things because you're trying to figure things out. Mm-hmm. You're they're they're right in your psyche. And that they're trying to tell you something and that there are symbols in the images that come out of the dream.
0: Yeah. It's uh crazy. I've been having this dream over and over again this week about my dog dying.
1: Oh either he's alive?
0: Yeah, he's here. Oh. He's my <laughs> best buddy. Like he's my he's my little partner in life. And uh the first one I had three or four of my students took him to like an empty field, and threw him in front of a train, and filmed it. So, like, Whoa. vivid dreams. Like I told you, yeah. but then every night after that, it's like this. Just he runs out into the street, and I can't get him to stop running. So I've been, you know, trying to deal with what the hell does that symbolize all week, and maybe, it, maybe it's just general anxiety about the state of the world, but um, it's interesting to me. So. Okay, your collection seems to deal so much with death and time, which I love. (laughs) Uh, what, What can you say? I mean, you write a lot about time, kind of the relationship between time and death. I almost thought the last essay, Coda, was about the death of your mother, but it sounds like she's still... She's
1: alive. It's funny. I read that piece, and somebody told me it's like a eulogy for my mother. Yeah, and it is. I think it's the eulogy for my mother of who she used to be. Okay. She is now she's not. She'll be ninety-one. I mean, she's getting old. She's yeah. lost her. Me- you know, she's losing her short-term memory, and she's become more vulnerable than I remember her as a kid. I, I mean, I think when you're a kid, you always see your your mothers as oh, you know, this powerful character. And now she's much more vulnerable. Um, I mean, I didn't go about wanting to write about death and time. I, I think I apparently think about death a lot. I think, but it's hard not to, I think, because that is part of my mom's journey here. That is why she came here. My kids are, my two girls are off and away. I don't have grandkids uh, so, um, she left where my brother was in Ohio to come out here for the specific reason that she wanted me to help her as she got older and then help her when she did die. And she does not want to be resuscitated. She does not want to have her life prolonged. And she has been telling me this for, I mean, my sister, brother, and I, I think for 20 years now, drilling it into us. Yeah. What I want. And she doesn't want a funeral. She, she wants just throw it in and throw my ashes in the garbage. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> so, oh, man. So, and then every time I see her, you know, it's sad. Uh, but she either is joking about dying, wanting to die. I mean, her last great comment was that um, if I can just find a big knife, I'm going to slit my throat. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of gallows humor. I mean, I have right. to. She laughs. Um, but then, but she's, every time I see her, she's talking about dying. So it's hard enough to think about it. My father's death was big for us as well. Um, and then I think when you're, you know, you have a piece of property like we do, uh, you know, we find dead birds, we find dead fawns. And I mean, those are always in calves and I don't know, they're always somewhat symbolic to me and, um, in some ways, you know, create beautiful images. There was one, a calf who had that had died down by our creek, and um, I watched it slowly disintegrate. Mm-hmm. It's, its bones were finally kind of dragged off here and there, but you could kind of see this perimeter where it had been, and out of where it had died, all, this whole little copse of aspen trees started growing. And so now we have this little woods, this little cluster of aspen trees right mm-hmm. where that dead calf was and i i find
0: that interesting it's beautiful right i mean i think it is
1: yeah
0: yeah you you're always alluding to to your mom like wanting to die what what (laughs) is i think uh, one thing i thought was really interesting in the in the essay about uh your father's death when you guys are doing kind of the fossil stuff you note that everybody there's a fossil lover except for your mother
1: yeah Uh, So for me, that essay was the most interesting to write. And I felt like got the deepest. Um, I I love fossils. I've loved fossils since I was a kid. I had a dead box. I collected fossils and dead things. I had all sorts of things in that box. But I've always loved fossils. And so you can go outside of Florissant National Park. There's a little um, quarry. Um, between the park and fluorescent, And you can yeah. pay $10, drive back there, and they and they bring this giant pile of shale and dump it on the ground. And then they give you a little butter knife and a little scraper. And you they teach you how to kind of peel the shale away. And then yeah. if you're lucky, you find these beautiful little carbon imprints of leaves and seeds and um, branches and and they found and bugs and they found a burr a beautiful bird there um the rain main to one uh so my brother had told me this story of my father he died of alzheimer's um it was it was a bad death and he was in a psych ward for a while um and so my brother went to visit him and and my dad was following him out the door wanted to leave with him yeah begging my brother take me with me. Don't leave me here. And my brother had to go through the doors and the doors closed. And there was the glass of the doors. And my father pressed his face against the glass to watch my dad, my brother. And that reminded me of those, those carbon imprints of those fossils. Mm. Um. And so um, that, you know, led me down this path. And I learned about the different kinds of fossils uh, that are out there, and then the fact that my mom was with me, right, and we were not only, and not only is, me I mean, is so fascinating, as I realized, because there's an extinct volcano there, and there used to be yeah. a lake, you know, yeah. and where, where the volcano was, you know, putting all the lava and ash in there, and so it just seemed, and that was really where my mom told me, I think I must have known, but I, I just didn't quite understand what that meant. When we're driving along and she talks a lot now, um, she chatters, I don't know if she really thinks about what she's chattering about. She tells me stories, <laughs> lots of stories. And so she brought up the story of my dad's death. And I think at the time, my sister and I and brother didn't understand why my dad died so quickly. Right. From Alzheimer's and it was because, and then she told me the story that they decided not to give him, he had stopped eating. They decided mm-hmm. not to give him a feeding tube. Yeah. And she never really said that at the time. And that, and I was so stunned in the car as we we're driving. And she said that, I mean, I almost burst into tears. She didn't even realize what she said was shocking. Cause then she went on to talk about, you know, donuts or whatever else she was talking about. And uh, I'm, I'm just paralyzed there. Um, yeah. I do see it differently now. My mom, I had to take her to the emergency room and that was a, and I knew that she had all these documentation that she didn't want to have her life prolonged. But um, one of the, I hadn't actually seen that paper for a while, but on it was, but she didn't want a feeding tube, etc. So my dad, I mean, he did not want to have his life sustained. I, I know he didn't. So I understand it more, but yeah. So, but those are like the fossils of things that are, they gather in the dust of your life and you try to you go through them you try to understand their meanings. As you grow older, you understand them in different ways. And I think writing is a way that helps me to do that Yeah.
0: Like the images of your father, you know, not wanting to be left and his face pressed against the glass sound so painful. Um.
1: And, and I was, I was going to say, yes, painful, but as I try to Explain to the students I've worked with who have painful things in their life that they're trying to write about, that they find them painful to write about, and they're not sure if they want to, you know, there's something about taking that, writing it in, and then it becomes an object of art outside of yourself. Yeah. And it gives you distance and perspective and it becomes beautiful in its own dark way.
0: Who are the frail children?
1: The ama- this was another amazing thing I learned about um, in my research about this area in Teller County, which I thought was just a bunch of rocks and grass. <laughs> uh, what I learned about is that um, there was a, a homesteader, Charlotte Hill. I'm going to find her go. She was an eighteen hundred sports homesteader who came across her. And she found the first fossil butterfly ever found in North America. Mm. And that means that, I mean, when you think about it, that is astounding that there would even be a fossil of a imprint of a butterfly. When you think how fragile their wounds are, yeah. somehow it ended up crushed in these rocks, but not crushed. And that they were, she found it and was, you know, I don't even know how she did it. She found the layers and opened the layers, I have no idea. But you could even see the veins of the wings and the wings' color patterns. Yeah. So he then passed that on to um, Dutter, who was a noted 19th century entomologist and an insect paleontologist. He called butterflies the frail children of the air. Mm -hmm. What she was astonished by was that um, in the last stages of their life, these butterflies would, as he said, be able to mimic the world of viewing around with their wings. And it was for the sole purpose of prolonging their aerial life for the few days of pairing and the de- depo- deposition of eggs um, that were intended for the insurance of the species for preservation. So that's <laughs> where the term frail children comes from. Did I know that before I started this essay? No. Right. That, that's why I, I think I'm, you know, I think I've become an advocate for doing research while you do essays. I mean, it's just, there's so much to learn about the world. It's yeah. So- um, but I realized in uh, with the frail children, the frail tra- children uh, were my father, right? I mean, my father had been a medical doctor, a wonderful, you know, gentle, caring, dedicated doctor who was struck down by Alzheimer's. My mother is a frail child, struck down by this paralyzing sense of wishing she were dead, longing to be dead, um, of losing her memory, losing her eyesight. She is a frail child. And then I'm a, I, I realize in writing this book, I have a sense that I am a frail child too. I mean, so yes, it's the family of frail children, I think. I think maybe anyone who is going through um, transformations, I think we're all vulnerable and frail, really.
0: When you think about it. Yeah. I mean it's especially it might sound silly, but it's especially top of mind right now with the you know, the global pandemic.
1: I know. I mean, you know, we walk around, we think are are okay and then somebody could just breathe on us and yeah. you know, if you happen to be you know, have um real frail physical health, you are in danger of dying.
0: Yeah from that. Yeah. Um The essay breviaries of the ghost, yes, another death. Sorry, I love it. I mean, okay, so
1: the other part of the title, slow arrow, comes from the poem "Slow Arrow" that um, that uh, inverted um, inverted Inverted syntax syntax published Um, because my sister asked me. My sister is a born again Christian. She's a very good person. Very good person. She says, why do you write about death all the time? <laughs> well, I mean, it just because it's out there everywhere. I mean, it's part of the beauty of the world, really. Um, but yes, uh, so the breviaries started. Um, I wrote that because I had an older student, a woman. She wasn't a student then. She came to my office at ACC. She had heard about my teaching creative writing And um, she had been taking classes there with her son. Um, And it turned out he had a drug uh, dependency, a drug problem. And he finally overdosed. And she came up to me because she wanted me, he was going to take my poetry class. And she wanted me to read his poems and tell her if he was a good poet. And I was not going to do that. I I was not going to read some kids' poems and evaluate them for the mother. But I did talk the mother and I had, and that essay is really about why, why did I find myself unable to do that? Yeah. But I, um, but I was in, you know, the good part that happened and she was sobbing in my office, but I actually managed to get her to take a class. Cause I thought, you know, cause she, well, she wanted to take a class cause she wanted to hand in his palms and then have the class talk about, you know, if they're good or not. And I was like, that is not going to happen. I said, I'm not going to do that. So I got her to, I think, I think the first class she took, she sat in on the class because I wasn't going to give a grade to a grieving mother, but I got her to start um, taking classes. And I think it took about three classes before she actually wrote something. Yeah. <laughs> and we were, and I was with a group of young women and it was actually the writer's studio club. And she came and we were having a good time. And then we found this website where you could write a little haiku and then upload it. And it would be published on the website. So we got her to write a haiku and then we published it. It was like the first thing she'd ever written. Mm-hmm. She ended up getting a degree from um, um, from Arapaho Community College, which is fascinating. But that essay braved, um not only her story, but also the story. At that time, we were having such a... Uh, our Aspen trees everywhere were dying like crazy. And then there was the, um, the beetle kill as well. And so it just became a braid uh, of that. Yeah. Of trying to both.
0: It has this, I got this sense of longing from the mother to just almost, well, now that you tell me she wanted them to be read in the class, like maybe a way to immortalize him.
1: And you know, my suggestion to her was, you know, take those poems, make a book out of them, right? Give them to the family. Um, I, I was more in, concerned about her, and I felt like writing would be something, would be a way for her to deal with her grief, because she right. was, she was in such pain.
0: Actually, in that essay, you allude to in the very first sentence how you set out to write an essay about something, and it often becomes about something else, so would you talk a little bit about that kind of from a craft perspective, how the essay seems to decide where it's going for you? Yeah,
1: I think that's the big distinction between what people think of an essay uh, when they think of one that they had to write for school, that had a thesis, right? Yeah have an introduction you have a thesis you've already mapped out where you're going to go in that essay and you are putting in whatever you need to support that thesis that, you, that you've already come up with crave nonfiction fiction is completely different from that um, crave non-fiction we don't really care what the thesis is i don't care i don't want a thesis right <laughs> I know. there's no thesis and it's about the journey of the eye it's i start here i mean you know, I could sit here and I could start writing about anything that I have in this room. And then it would be a journey of where would it take me? Um And so you, it's, it's, rumin, it's ruminating and reflection. It's um, bringing in images that come to mind and then just allowing your mind to follow where it wants to go and then to see what you end up with and then to kind of um work with that material finally i I think it's successful you know i think it's an exciting um genre for that reason because it is about the unknown it's about the the eye of the eye like what we're interested in is how does this mind you know work yeah and that's the important part of it
0: love it I graduated from Regis in January, and since finishing my manuscript, I haven't written anything.
1: Uh, what's that? I'm feeling bad? Uh, no, I'm
0: okay with it. Cause I, <laughs> my understanding is that that's kind of common. you you went
1: down with Iowa, like I was so burned out. I couldn't write anything for a while. Like people say that it's like you've got, I mean, you've had, so, you, it's three years, right? All together. Two. Time, two and a half. I, yeah. Something. Yeah. Two and a half. Two, two and a half. So it's by the time you get done. I mean, I know you guys are all fried. I'm yeah. gorgeous. Those um, residencies are so intense with, you know, day after day, after day, after day, like yeah. just all stuff being tugged on you. And then here you are getting, you know, feedback from all these different writers and then your peers, you're getting feedback and you and you change immensely. I mean, I think that's what I love about the MFA program is that whatever student comes in, no matter what level they are at, it is astonishing to see how their work changes. Oh my God, yeah. In those years. But when the writer's got to figure out, well, who am I and how, you know, now you've got, I think so often you end up with, They have a thesis, but when they start thinking about a book, they're going, well, I have this work that I did, you know, two years ago, but it's not like the work I'm doing now, right? How do I, it doesn't have the power, the focus, you know, whatever it is. So how am I going to make this work? So I think you do need a little intermission to kind of figure out, okay, let me just sit back a little bit, yeah, figure out who the hell I am. Exactly.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm planning to kind of rewrite over the summer so um but all that to say that your braided essays have kind of put a fire under my butt again because i don't, I don't know i had an essay called peregrination published in the fairly new journal uh hairstreet butterfly review mm, that nice. is kind of braided i mean i'm I'm going to send it to you because I think you might be, be interested, but for me, this, this style of writing that you've done here with this collection is, I don't know, it's really kind of similar to, to the way I write and when I'm writing at my best, I think. So it's been super inspiring. I think I'm going to maybe take some time during this quarantine situation to
1: I know Um, I'm going to do a new writing practice. There is, um, I published in January. I did that. Were you there? No, you went. Were you there for, did you go to my craft seminar at the winter residency about the, no, that would have been two. No, last summer, the physics of sorrow, a case example of the braided essay.
0: No, last summer I was in the Pacific Northwest doing like a, a travel semester.
1: Okay. Well, I ended up writing up about that, writing an essay about that seminar, and you might want to look it up. Mm. You might. Here's to look it up. I published it with Essay Daily. It's an online uh, journal, and its um, essay is talking about essays. And so my husband had wrote uh, wrote his first braided essay, basically. And so I talk about the process of watching him write that. And um,
0: is it the that- sorry is it the essay about revision like the intimacy of revision
1: yeah okay that's right
0: i have it pulled up i haven't read it yet
1: okay perfect i think for me doing it what for me that again i mean i'm always learning as a teacher got this idea and it was really from this um writer carmen um carmen Diaz Smith and um uh, where she talked about, she did a book of the American, um, but she, anyways, what she did for, it's a braided book. And what she did is she had uh, sticky notes and each color of the sticky note represented a different strand mm. and she put them up on her walls and to make sure that she was weaving those strands all the way through her book. So when Leonard wow. gave me his essay, the first draft of it, I went through and highlighted all the threads. Mm-hmm. So every time there was a, cha- a change of subject, something new was introduced, then I would, get, I'd, I would highlight it with a new color from the highlighter on the word processing program. Um, and that was really cool because we could see all the different threads that were there. And then um, we started looking at which were ones that were repeated and there was really one and that was about black holes and that became the frame of his essay and then he got rid of threads but then we, we you know he was able to start working with how could he weave those threads all the way through the essay so it was kind of a good visual representation of the process
0: yeah do you feel like that the topics or the threads in a braided essay need to be really uh tangible or can they be more abstract i'm thinking of my memoirs like I'm trying to make more, you know, tangible symbols or objects that you can hold on to, to represent, you know, the feeling or the metaphor. But I'm dealing with kind of these big themes of abandonment or trauma or addiction.
1: Well, it sounds like you are, is your past in poetry? Because it sounds like you really think about things from the poet's eye.
0: Yeah, not, nothing formal, but that's definitely what I've written Okay. You know, throughout my I life
1: because you're concerned about image and metaphor and, yeah. and having concrete object. I mean that's all poetry right show don't tell do the concrete stay away from the abstract but I think what you need to remember that in Crave Nonfiction it's it's also about reflection uh, right. Kim Barnes is a wonderful essayist and teacher she talks about a really basic um kind of frame you could have for an essay, which would be scene, reflection, white space. Scene, reflection, white space. So that, I think that's one of the hardest things for poets to deal with. I know I had the same trouble myself, and that is um, the reflection part. Because we're trained from so early, show don't tell. Yeah. did right? like I'm supposed to tell?
0: <laughs> right yeah that's been no, hard
1: that, yeah so I think that for me then yes I think that um, depending how you do it one of your threads can certainly be the abstract the the reflection the trying to understand
0: yeah David Lazaro is one of my mentors and I originally and it's still the first third of my book is in first person present tense from my perspective as a child <laughs> Oh yeah, and he's like, which is very challenging. Not many people yeah. do it, and a lot yeah. of people, yeah. Uh, but he was like, "Where's the you now?" <laughs> so like, yeah I know, I know, it's so hard. So that's going to be a big part of the rewrite and the revision this summer. But well,
1: that's, that's it's so vitally important in crave nonfiction. It's the it's the double narrator. It's the narrator now you who you are and then it's the narrator of the past who you were before and it's yeah. the narrator now who reflects upon the the narrator of the past who would not under would be naive and not understand what was happening in the same way that you you understand now
0: yeah it's gonna be interesting, <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's gonna be interesting yeah. <laughs> but yeah so, I mean, you know i think what you could do is think about that as being uh one of your threads in your brain if you writing in okay here i am here i am the person who has gone through this education on writing who um you said you have are doing therapy you're interested in dream work yeah so that person looking back at the experiences that you had and what you've written in that voice and now asking yourself okay well what is it that i didn't understand now that i understand now
0: yeah how do it- i yeah good stuff now you're giving me all kinds of ideas
1: <laughs>
0: um so what's next for
1: you once this i know this is not even released yet but yeah. well it's going to be pro it'll be released online for sure um well there was supposed to be a lot of activities going yeah. on like, uh, um so but i'm already i'm actually um working on a poetry manuscript again. I don't know if it's just poetry though. Now I'm thinking that it's really more uh, flash nonfiction. I think oh, I'm mean, going oh. to do the prose poem forms. I think these are turning out to be that way. I like the blurring of genre. Yeah. fully embrace it. And um, the, ne- the next tangible thing that would happen in June, if it's not canceled, <laughs> I'm hoping by then we'll all be healthy. Right. Uh, the pain progression. So another uh, cool exhibit they're doing is that they had um, artists collaborate with each other. And Trina Bumiller is an artist who did the cover of my poetry book. She's a wonderful artist, and she asked me if I would uh, collaborate with her on part of the exhibit.
0: Mm. So,
1: she, so I have written three poems, and then she is doing three paintings based on those poems. Wow. Exhibited at the Arvada Center with a bunch of other people. I mean, there's it's, it's going to be a giant exhibit. It's going to be so cool.
0: I can't I can't wait for that. You said that's in June?
1: That's in June, yeah. That's in June when they have the opening um, reception for that. So that's going to be um, – so that's been fun to work on. Um, so I think I'm going to just work on these poems. And I think they're not poems. They're flash nonfiction slash prose poems. Yeah. So whatever I want them to
0: do. <laughs> Good. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much. Oh,
1: thank you for talking with me.
0: As always, thank you for tuning in. You can purchase Kathy's new collection from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Powell's Books, and IndieBound. Until next time, keep reading.